Father, thank you for the gift that you've given to us in your Son. We reflect on the cross that he bore in our place, and we are moved to worship and to adoration. We pray that you would shape our thinking and our living according to that cross. Would you help us now as we look closely at it and we marinate in the word that you've given to us. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. Would you please join me in reading the last five verses of Psalm 22? They'll be up on the screen. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So much of this psalm is familiar to us mainly because the gospel writers quote or allude to it multiple times as they describe Jesus' experience on Good Friday. But let's not misunderstand what the gospel writers are doing with this psalm. They do not view this psalm as a prediction of Jesus' sufferings. No, they are doing something far more wonderful and more significant. If I can say it this way, they're doing something far truer. The gospel writers recognize that this psalm was written by David, and David was describing his own experience first and foremost. His relationship with God is on display in this psalm. His experience of suffering and hostility is being depicted in powerful poetry. But then the gospel writers recognize that Jesus is the son of David. And they see David, rightly, as a God-intended type of Jesus. In other words, the gospel writers see parallels between David's life and experience and Jesus' life and experience. David is depicting himself in Psalm 22 as a righteous sufferer. And while David can be spoken of as righteous relative to the people of Israel and as innocent in certain specific situations, Jesus is perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent, and yet he suffers and dies as though he were guilty. The Gospel writers are reading Psalm 22 in its proper context. It is indeed prophetic, though it is not predictive. The Gospel writers do a better job than we tend to do at keeping Old Testament verses in proper context. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I suppose that helps. For example, as we consider this, it's fascinating that not one New Testament writer draws on the last line of verse 16, where David writes of his enemies, they have pierced my hands and feet. A glance down at footnotes in your English Bibles or a look at any commentary on Psalm 22 worth its salt would tell you that this particular line is complicated. But let's ignore the complexity for a moment. Let's assume that this phrase is a good reflection of what David originally wrote. Why didn't any Spirit-inspired New Testament writer quote this verse and suggest that Jesus' experience fulfilled this verse? Could it be simply that they refused to take the line out of its context? I've heard many well-meaning preachers and enthusiastic evangelists say things like, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies during his life on earth. And then they'll point to this one as the cream of the crop. Some will say that David is describing crucifixion hundreds of years before it was even invented. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here. And if it feels like I'm about to take something valuable away from you, I promise what I'm about to give you is far more valuable and far more excellent. Look again at the whole of verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. 
Then glance back just a couple of verses to verses 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Within this section, he is comparing his enemies poetically with wild animals, bulls, lions, and dogs. Thus, when we keep that in mind and we read, they have pierced my hands and feet, the image that comes to mind is not crucifixion, but rather being bitten with sharp teeth. In fact, the Jewish Targum, which were ancient paraphrases of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Aramaic language, adding in some interpretive comments here and there, suggested that this line is speaking of biting like a lion. I suggest this is why the New Testament writers didn't have any interest in quoting this particular line in connection with Jesus' crucifixion. As one writer observes, someone reading this psalm before the cross would have been more likely to conclude that Jesus would suffer the Roman execution of being thrown to wild beasts rather than crucifixion. Likewise, no New Testament writer refers to the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet, which could have been an allusion to this verse. The only reason we know Jesus' hands and feet were indeed pierced by nails is because of John's account of Thomas' demand to see the marks of the nails. But the text never says, they pierced my hands and feet in the New Testament. David was not describing crucifixion before that form of execution existed. Neither was the Holy Spirit intending that as some secret meaning that was beyond what David was thinking. David was also wasn't writing with the purpose of describing the future Messiah's death. So remember that. In fact, as we read through this psalm, the person being described does not die. Instead, the suffering poetically described in this fantastic psalm is the suffering David experienced. But it is also, by God's providential design, foreshadowing the more terrible suffering Jesus would experience. Interestingly, there is zero evidence that Psalm 22 was read messianically by any Jewish people before Jesus. So it's reasonable to ask the question, why did, what did Jesus see that his contemporaries didn't? And what did the Spirit-inspired New Testament writers see that their Jewish ancestors didn't? This is where we return to thinking about the role of prophecy in evangelism that I alluded to earlier. I have heard so many folks get so excited about the fact that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. When I hear that, my response is, meh. And people react when I do that. <laughs> and they ask me, well, but isn't that amazing? Actually, I think it's kind of lame. And it's misleading. It doesn't fit with what Jesus himself said. After his resurrection, he chastised his disciples headed toward Emmaus. In Luke 24, 25, he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Luke tells us what happened next in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught these disciples to go beyond looking for specifically recognized so-called messianic prophecies. And it's not just that Jesus saw messianic prophecies that the rest of the Jewish people didn't. No, he saw the whole of the Old Testament as pointing to him. One writer summarizes the point this way, the Old Testament is therefore a book whose every page is designed to unfold for us the gospel of Jesus Christ accomplished by his sufferings and resurrection and applied through the outpouring of the Spirit on all nations. That 
is the lens through which we need to read the Old Testament, all of it, because that is the way Jesus read his Old Testament. With that in mind, how do we read Psalm 22? We must see it first as a reflection of David's experience. And that means, by the way, that you can take it in your own lips as an expression of your own suffering and your own relationship with the Lord. But then we do have to move to see how it also describes Jesus' experience. We must learn to hold those layers together. Allow me to very quickly summarize the movement of this beautiful and terrible lament psalm. Up on the screen, you'll see an outline coming pretty quickly in rapid fire here. First, in verses 1 and 2, David expresses his belief that God has abandoned him. In verses 3 to 5, David remembers that God didn't abandon David's ancestors. In verses 6 to 8, he presents the evidence of God's abandonment, the mockery of his opponents. In verses 9 to 11, he reminds God that he claimed David as his even before he was born, and he expresses his need for God to act. Verses 12 to 18 are the centerpiece of the psalm. As David describes the hostility of his opponents using the imagery of being besieged by wild beasts. In verses 19 to 21, David makes his plea, save me now. In the second half of verse 21, we get the turning point of the psalm. God answers. God shows up. The God David believed had abandoned him shows up. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Thus, in response to God showing up to rescue and vindicate him, in verses 22 to 26, he promises to share the good news with the people of Israel. Finally, in verses 27 to 31, he announces with full confidence the fulfillment of God's grand promises to bring salvation to all the nations. On the cross, Jesus will quote the first line of verse 1 as an expression of his own experience of God's abandonment. And the gospel writers will pull out several phrases from the rest of the psalm that accurately describe Jesus' suffering on Good Friday. However, we readers must remember the larger context and recognize that the whole psalm tells the bigger story of the gospel. Jesus' experience of suffering leads to God's vindication and deliverance of him in resurrection, which then results in salvation for Israel and all nations. Jesus is the royal son of David, who receives his crown through the cross. I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Ironic Enthronement of the King of the Jews. Everything in Matthew 27, 27 to 50 shows Jesus' kingship. But Matthew's focus is on the mockery Jesus experienced. Through the mockery of everyone around him, Jesus' royal identity shines. Almost everything the people say to and about Jesus is absolutely true although they don't believe it. They speak ironically. Matthew shows us readers the truth. Thus, as we walk through the passage, we're going to focus on the kingly storyline. We are watching the enthronement of the king of kings. We begin in verses 27 to 31 with the king's coronation. Matthew has artistically structured this paragraph as a chiasm so that the second half of verse 29 is emphasized as the main point where the soldiers say, Hail, King of the Jews. Let's read the verses. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. After being brutally flogged, Jesus is dragged back into Pilate's headquarters. Hundreds of soldiers gathered to see the spectacle. Jesus is roughly stripped of his own clothes, and one of the soldiers supplies a maroon cloak, often worn by Roman field commanders. As though he were a character on stage who needed a wardrobe change, Jesus is being manhandled and presented to an audience of depraved and violent men. The maroon color could be described as purple, as in Mark's account, or more reddish, as Matthew has it. Either way, the cloak presents Jesus as a conquering warrior, a victorious soldier returning from war. The soldiers then grabbed a nearby thorn bush and bent and weaved it into a kind of garland to be jammed down onto Jesus' head. Caesar didn't typically wear what we tend to think of as a grand golden crown. Rather, he would wear a leafy branch, sometimes in a full circular shape, other times just a half circle. You've all seen the mascot for Little Caesar's Pizza, right? Got the green branches right there. It may be that that image is more accurate for the way the thorns were positioned on Jesus' head. Rather than the full circular wreath depicted in artwork portraying the crucifixion, it may have looked more like this image on the screen. Finally, to complete the royal ensemble, they either pulled up a nearby reed plant or they took a baton from one of the soldiers and forced Jesus to hold it in his right hand to serve as a royal scepter, a symbol of his kingly authority. Then the entire battalion of soldiers knelt in front of this king and said, Hail, King of the Jews. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew has shaped this paragraph in such a way that highlights these words. Jesus is indeed the King of the Jews. But of course, he is much more than that. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And while these Roman soldiers are having a bit of depraved fun at Jesus' expense, they are ironically foreshadowing the day when every knee will bow, including theirs, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The mockery of Jesus has been referred to as emotional and mental torture and a verbal flogging. He will endure much more of this as he hangs on the cross. But before he can be taken away to his final destination, his kingly attire must be removed. The soldiers rise from their knees, spit in Jesus' face, take the reed out of his hand and beat him on the head with it, and then they put his own tunic back on him. The text doesn't say that they removed the crown of thorns from his head, and this has led to artistic depictions of Jesus uh, still wearing the crown on the cross. This is possible, but it's also possible that they knocked the thorns off his head when they struck him with the reed. In the face of all of this, Jesus doesn't say a word in his own defense, not a word in protest, not a word against his abusers. As the soldiers lead him away to crucify him, we next consider the king's escort. The ordeal up to this point has so physically weakened him that he cannot carry his own cross to the crucifixion site. Look at verses 32 to 34. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
Jesus would have been forced to carry a long, thick, and heavy rectangular block of wood, probably weighing between 30 and 40 pounds. This is the wood to which his hands would later be nailed. The vertical part of the cross is already most likely planted in the ground at the crucifixion site. As they make their way out of the city of Jerusalem, they run into a traveler, most likely a Jewish pilgrim arriving late for Passover, uh, a man named Simon from the region of Cyrene in North Africa. Simon is dragged into a drama he probably knew nothing about beforehand. Suddenly, he's conscripted by the Roman soldiers to carry a condemned criminal's crossbeam to the execution site. Thus, a stranger is press-ganged into participating in Jesus' suffering. The execution site is called Golgotha, an Aramaic name meaning skull place. The Latin equivalent is the origin of the name Calvary. Why the spot had this name remains unclear. Some have suggested it was figurative for the fact that it was a place of death and execution. Others have supposed that the location looked like a skull when viewed from a distance. Either way, it is now famous for being the place where the king of the Jews was executed. When they arrived, someone offered Jesus a mixed drink. Mark identifies the substance as wine with a bit of myrrh added. Matthew uses the term gall instead of myrrh. And by doing so, he draws to his readers' minds another lament psalm of David. The first line of Psalm 69, 21 refers to the people surrounding David, and he poetically describes their hostility. They gave me poison for food. The Greek version of the psalm uses the same word Matthew uses, here translated gall. David essentially describes the people around him, presumably Israelites who owe him allegiance and service as their king, as attempting to poison him. The Roman soldiers here are likely continuing their mockery of Jesus. They are pretending to offer Jesus a drink that might refresh him, while secretly they have spiked the drink. Some have suggested that myrrh could have a numbing effect on the body, so that the soldiers were attempting to provide Jesus with something that would numb his pain so that his suffering on the cross could be extended. When Jesus tasted the cocktail, he refused to drink it. There may be at least three reasons why Jesus refused the drink. First, he had told the disciples that he would not drink wine again until he drank it with them in the new creation. Secondly, Jesus was not interested in having his senses dulled, and he did not want to ingest any substance that might cause him to lose self-control. Commentator Dale Bruner insightfully observes, Jesus did not want to do or say anything in the last minutes of his life that could compromise obedience to his Father's will. This is a good example for believers to consider in evaluating the wisdom of consuming alcohol or other substances that inhibit judgment. Third, Jesus has volunteered to be the suffering servant that Steve read about from Isaiah 53 earlier, and the righteous sufferer depicted in the Psalms. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had resolved to drink the cup of his father's wrath down to the dregs. This would require him to experience the pain and suffering deserved by sinners, which is not limited to the physical agonies of crucifixion. Jesus refuses to drink a literal drop of gall because Yahweh is going to fill him with spiritual gall when he drinks the cup of God's wrath. As he refuses to drink the literal cup of poisoned wine, we read about the king's guard who watches over him as he drinks the spiritual cup of the wrath of God. Here, Matthew speaks of Jesus' crucifixion with three Greek words that are not even the main part of the sentence. 
As Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, but here there is a seemingly greater emphasis placed on what happens to Jesus' garments than on what is happening to his dying body. The main truth of Christianity is Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the main verb of this sentence is they divided his garments. Look at verses 35 to 37. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. None of the gospel writers provide any physical descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion. Here, Matthew even keeps the cross itself in the background. He still wants to focus our attention on the mockery of Jesus. I will follow their lead and not go into any of the grotesque physical horrors Jesus experienced. Simply described, the piece of wood carried by Simon of Cyrene would have been laid down on the ground, and Jesus' bloody and naked body would have been laid on top of it, and the soldiers would have fastened his arms to the wood with nails. They would have then hoisted him up onto the vertical piece of wood, firmly secured in the ground, which would have had notches in which the horizontal wood was to rest. Finally, they would have secured his feet to the vertical piece of wood with one long nail. Then we are told that they gambled for Jesus' clothes. There would have been four soldiers assigned to watch over this crucified criminal to ensure that no one would attempt to rescue him. This lines up with what we saw in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. David may have been merely poetically illustrating how his opponents believed him to be under the judgment of God, such that he must soon surely die and have no more need of his clothes. Or it may reflect genuine experience when he was forced to flee from the palace, from his home, so that others came in to take over and decided to dispose of some of his clothing. Jesus' final earthly possessions probably consisted of a tunic, a belt, and a pair of sandals. Not enough for each of the four soldiers to take something home for themselves. It's interesting that we have featured drugs, alcohol, and gambling surrounding the the death of Jesus. One writer has noticed this and therefore sees the cross as, quote, the place of recovery par excellence. This crucified king provides pardons for addicts while even offering freedom and power for true and lasting change. The official charge against Jesus was hung above his head as a deterrent for others who might attempt to commit the same kind of crime. Thus, those who would claim to be rival kings to Caesar get crucified. Here's an artist's rendering on the next slide of what the placard might have actually looked like. John's Gospel tells us that the charge was printed in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Ironically, Jesus' kingship is being proclaimed to the whole world as he sits enthroned upon a cross. As commentator Dan Doriani observes, Jesus is king of the Jews, and ironically, he reigns from the cross. From the cross, he fulfills a king's central duties, protecting his people and delivering them from harm. He atones for their guilt and vanquishes sin and its power. He defeats their prime adversaries, sin and death, all from the cross. With the coronation essentially complete, who makes up the king's court? We see several folks featured in verses 38 to 44. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The king's court is made up of two rebels, several passers-by, and the Jewish leaders. And everyone joins together to make mockery of the king. First, let's consider the two rebels. We talked about the word translated robber. It refers to someone involved in an insurrection, a terrorist. Jesus Barabbas had been designated for the middle cross, and it may have been that he was the leader of an attempted rebellion against the Romans with these other two men. Earlier, Jesus' disciples, James and John, had requested the two places of honor next to Jesus, at his right and at his left, when he came into his kingdom. Jesus had told them that those positions were reserved for others by God the Father. Behold, the seats at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus as he enters his kingdom. James and John could have been here had they not been scattered, had they not abandoned Jesus the night before. Nevertheless, in verse 44, we find even these two crucified criminals joining in the mockery with everyone else, wasting their dying breaths to heap hostilities on the only innocent man on the scene. Luke's gospel tells us that one of these two men experiences genuine repentance in the hours that followed, but for now, he is involved in the blasphemy of everyone else. In verses 39 and 40, we read about the passers-by. These would be pilgrim Jews on their way into Jerusalem to continue celebrating Passover, oblivious to the truth that the man on the middle cross is dying as the ultimate and final Passover lamb in order to take away the sins of the world. As they enter the city, they see Jesus on his cross with the sign above him proclaiming his kingship, and they deride him. The word translated deride is usually translated as blaspheme. As one writer observes, the one wrongly condemned for speaking blasphemy has wrongly become the object of blasphemy. Matthew says they wagged their heads at him, a phrase drawn from Psalm 22, 7. And Matthew quotes their mockery as having to do with some of the false testimony presented to the Sanhedrin earlier that morning. Apparently, word has spread. Their mockery is based on gossip. But here there is, again, ironic truth in what they say. The false testimony that he had claimed to be able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in in three days was intended to demonstrate that he was a false prophet. However, Jesus had spoken a prophecy some three years before, and it is being fulfilled before their very eyes. The true temple of Jesus' body is being destroyed, and Jesus will rebuild it in three days in his resurrection. But their mockery is found in the command, save yourself. If he is powerful enough to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then surely he's got the power to get off that cross. Thus, the passersby speak the satanic words, if you are the Son of God. Echoing the devil in the wilderness, the passersby demand he prove his divine sonship. As Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness, so he is here mocked and tempted three times on the cross. Ironically, he is demonstrating his power through the weakness of the cross. Stale Brunner writes, the church believes that the greatest miracle Jesus ever did was the miracle he did not do. In a way, what Jesus does not do now is more powerful than anything he ever did do. Real power is the control of power. 
the rejection of power, the willingness to express power in weak-seeming ways. Climactically, the Jewish leaders join in on the mockery. They take a break from whatever duties in the temple they should have been attending to in preparation for Passover to see to it that Jesus is coming to the end for which they had schemed. Their taunt begins by sarcastically acknowledging that Jesus had indeed saved others. This probably refers to Jesus' healing miracles. Oftentimes, Matthew used the word saved to refer to physical healing. The Jewish leaders could never falsify Jesus' miracles. They questioned the source of his power. They wonder now where his power has gone. Undoubtedly, since they believed that he was empowered by Satan to work miracles, they view him as having been abandoned by Satan at this point. Jesus is experiencing abandonment, as we'll see in a moment, but it has nothing to do with Satan. What these blind guides cannot see is that Jesus is working to save others right before their eyes. In a far more significant way than physical healing, Jesus is accomplishing the mission his father sent him into the world to accomplish, a mission proclaimed by the meaning of his name. The angel had told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's doing it. It is true. He cannot save himself and save his people from their sins. So he won't save himself. Notice also that the Jewish leaders state the absolute truth in the third phrase of verse 42. He is the king of Israel. Of course, they say this with a sarcastic tone, but it is nevertheless absolutely true. As one writer says, the irony is thick at this point in the story where Jesus is addressed by all the right titles, but in all the wrong ways, because those who are using them understand them to mean something different than Jesus did. But in their mind... The king of Israel cannot be crucified by the Romans. Thus, if he really is the king of Israel, he can demonstrate his identity by coming off the cross. And then they say they will believe in him. Another request for a miraculous sign. Many people today still say things like this. If he cures me of cancer, I'll believe in him. If he intervenes to save my marriage, I'll believe in him. If he shows me definitive Scientific proof of his existence. I'll believe in him. All of these kinds of demands reveal a hard heart that is nowhere near close to believing in Jesus. Jesus will come down from the cross. He'll be lowered by others. And his lifeless body will be laid in a tomb. And we believe in him because he stayed on the cross long enough to die. We believe in him because he refused to perform a miraculous sign to save his own life. We believe in him because he came up out of his tomb on the third day. To add another layer to the irony, the Jewish leaders continue their mockery in words accidentally quoted from Psalm 22, 8, a line David poetically put in the mouths of his mockers. When a godly person suffers, observers often conclude that God must be cursing that person. Job's friends come to mind. But that last if statement would be their sharpest attack against Jesus' heart. If the Father desires Jesus, then surely he would rescue him from death on a cross, they reason. The Father himself has given testimony on this point twice in Matthew's Gospel. At Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father spoke in audible words from heaven, and both times he affirmed that Jesus is his beloved Son and that he delights in him. 
It is because his father delights in him that he remains on the cross. It is because he is the true son of the father that he remains on the cross. His father sent him for this very reason. His trust in his father will not be disappointed. And his sonship will be most clearly proven. The Jewish leaders remind us that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. And that is the very point that Matthew's gospel most wants to tell the world. As Jesus remains on the cross, enthroned as the true king of the Jews, we now move to the climax of the story, the king's judgment. By that phrase, I mean the judgment of the king. That is to say, the judgment experienced by the king. The king is now being judged. Look at verses 45 to 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Here we see four aspects of the judgment the king experiences. Darkness, abandonment, misunderstanding, and death. First, we see three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. This darkness is meant to recall the ninth plague In Egypt, Egypt, the darkness lasted three days. In Jerusalem, it would last three hours. In Egypt, the darkness was the ninth plague, setting the stage for the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn sons that God used to set the Israelites free from bondage to the Egyptians. In Jerusalem, the darkness likewise set the stage for the death of Jesus as the Passover lamb, which God would use to set all who believe in him free from bondage to Satan, sin, and death. A bright star announced the birth of the king of the Jews in the darkness of night. Now, in a deep deep darkness in the middle of the day, announces the death of the king of the Jews. Now, from Luke and John, we know that Jesus made six other statements while on the cross. A common way of putting them together in chronological order suggests that the statement we're about to consider, recorded in Matthew and Mark is the centerpiece of the seven. In the midst of the darkness, Jesus cries out in the words of Psalm 22, 1, highlighting his experience of abandonment. Matthew notes the time, at the ninth hour. The Jewish historian Josephus indicates that the ninth hour, which would be about 3 p.m., was the time that the priests would offer the daily evening sacrifices. So the chief priests are likely back in the temple at this point, handling the evening sacrifices according to the Mosaic law. Jesus takes up the words of Psalm 22.1, showing Jesus' awareness of his fulfillment of David's royal role. This is the only recorded prayer of Jesus that does not address God as Father. Nevertheless, he addresses his Father as my God, indicating that the relationship remains, even in the face of abandonment and distance. We dare not attempt to delve too much into the experience of the Trinity, but we can focus on the experience of the man in his forsakenness, abandonment, 
When David first penned these words and voiced this desperate cry, his prolonged suffering from the hostilities of other Israelites had led him to conclude that he must be under the judgment of God. That is certainly what his opponents thought. After all, repeatedly in the Old Testament, Yahweh promises to never abandon his people. However, we must hold in tension with these promises the reality that he did, at times, abandon them. God's abandonment is an outworking of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Thus, when someone experienced being forsaken or abandoned by God, it is because they have so rebelled against God, so rejected the covenant relationship, that the Lord is expressing his judgment against unfaithful covenant breakers. David asks why, because at least in this situation, his conscience is clear. He had not done anything that expressed rebellion against God. But notice also that David cries out to God, the one who has apparently abandoned him. Thus, he believes that his God may yet have mercy. He believes that his God may yet show up to rescue him from his suffering. He sees his God as the only remedy for his abandonment by his God. While Psalm 22.1 is certainly a question, it is just as certainly a rhetorical question, which means it's making a statement. David is not looking for reasons. He's not expecting God to supply an explanation for his suffering. Job was in his questioning. Instead, David is simply pleading for God to come back. He's laying his horror at being abandoned by God before God. Jesus is doing the same thing. The man on the middle cross is having an utterly new experience. He is not experiencing intimacy with his heavenly father. Instead, he is experiencing his father's displeasure, his dreadful wrath. Jesus knows exactly why this is happening. So again, he is not asking for an explanation. He is taking the words of a rhetorical question penned by David in Psalm 22 to verbalize the meaning of what is happening. Pastor Doug O'Donnell identifies one word from this dark cry at this dark hour as expressing Jesus' theology of the cross, forsaken. Why is Jesus experiencing this? Not because he's guilty, not because he is a sinner. He is being treated the way the holy God must treat sin. He is being abandoned. He is being destroyed. And he is doing it so that no one who believes in him will ever experience God's abandonment again. Ever. But as a further reality of his being under God's judgment, his words are immediately misunderstood. Matthew and Mark record Jesus' Aramaic words so that we readers can see how such a misunderstanding could have happened. The Aramaic address that means my God is Eli, and it sounds very similar to a form of Elijah's name, Elias. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. His ability to speak is probably being hampered as he struggles to breathe. It's amazing that he's still able to cry out with a loud voice at this point. Thus, the bystanders misunderstand what's going on. One person in the crowd ran off to try to get Jesus a drink, probably asking for sour wine from one of the soldiers in order to help Jesus speak more clearly. What is sour wine, you ask? One writer explains, this was a gesture of kindness as wine vinegar was the thirst quencher of its day, rather like Gatorade. It was the regular fare soldiers and agricultural workers would drink under a hot sun, and it was called Pascha. But for Matthew, its significance comes from the Old Testament. 
earlier, Matthew had used the term gall for the drink Jesus earlier refused. And that term was probably drawn from the first line of Psalm 69, 21. The second line of Psalm 69, 21 is probably referred to here. David had written, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. For David, this was an expression of hostility. But for Jesus, it is at best an act of misguided civility. The person who retrieved the sour wine is stopped by others in the crowd who want to wait and see if Elijah would show up to rescue Jesus from the cross. No one understands that Jesus must go all the way. He must die right here, right now, on this cross. And he does. Verse 50 summarizes powerfully. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. None of the gospel writers describe his death by simply saying, he died. Instead, they all use phrases like this one that communicate Jesus' control and choice of this moment. In the mystery of the incarnation, under the direction of the Heavenly Father, the Spirit of God created a human spirit with human DNA in the womb of a teenage Jewish girl named Mary. The eternal Son of God joined with that human spirit in the one person named Jesus. Now, on the cross, Jesus returns his human spirit to the God who created it. His life was not taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord in obedience to his Father. Most crucified men faded out in death. They gradually became weaker and their physical strength petered out until they could no longer sustain their bodies. Jesus chose this moment in full control of the moment of his own death. The Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca, who was born about the same time as Jesus, once said about the crosses Roman soldiers used to crucify criminals, Can any man be found willing to be fastened to that accursed tree? There was one man. His name is Jesus. And so it is that we see the king's death. The king of the Jews dies under the judgment of God, but not for sins of his own. The king of the Jews was executed as a criminal, but not for any crimes that he'd actually been convicted of. His blood is innocent. His blood is righteous. So why did he die? In Jesus' own words, he gave his life as a ransom for many. The word translated ransom refers specifically to a price paid to secure the release of a slave. Thus, Jesus died in order to secure the release of many slaves. He viewed his life as a substitutionary payment for the forfeited lives of many sinners. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Yahweh told Moses to tell the enslaved people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In these glorious promises, he uses the language of redemption, which, like ransom, indicates the payment of a price to release from slavery. But he does not specify what the price will be and who will be paying it. As the story progresses, we see the great acts of judgment against the Egyptians. 
But then, with the onset of the tenth plague, we get a glimpse of what is at stake in securing their release. Moses instructs the Israelites to select and slaughter a lamb for each of their households. The lives of the Israelites, just as much as the lives of the Egyptians, were forfeited in the presence of a holy God. Yahweh has freely, graciously chosen to establish a relationship with these sinful people, and he has graciously, freely provided them with a sacrifice, the death of an animal, to secure their release from slavery to the Egyptians, to set them free, to be in relationship with the one true God. Now, as Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has given his life as a ransom for many, a once-for-all-time, unrepeatable, immeasurably valuable sacrifice that has secured eternal freedom from sin and death for all who will trust him. What kind of king gives his own life for his people? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Indeed, he is the king of a heavenly kingdom, and he is establishing his heavenly kingdom on earth through the cross. He rose from the dead and ascended to his throne at the right hand of God. He will return to the earth in triumph, and he will return to bring final and everlasting judgment against all who remain in rebellion against him. So the kingdom of heaven is here. The king has given his life as a ransom for many. Today, therefore, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to spread the blood of Jesus over the doorposts of your life. Today is the day to trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard to know how to respond every time we look at the details of the crucifixion. Such an act of sacrifice, as we've sung this morning, demands all of our life. And so, in this moment, as we reflect on what we've heard and what we've seen in our mind's eye, a token of that life must be presented. And so we give you thanks. We see the death of our great king as the great gift that it is. And we simply say thank you. We marvel at the grace that's been shown to undeserving, unworthy, ill-deserving people like us. And we give you thanks. And we do pray that as we continue to look and relook at the death of our Savior, the death of our King, the death of our Lord, that you would impact us by that vision, that you would transform us as we see the glory of God in the face of our dying Savior. And we celebrate because that was not the end of the story. We celebrate and rejoice because he rose from the dead on the third day. And this is why we trust him. And so we pray that you would fill us up with faith and gratitude as we think about the death of Jesus and what it's done for us. Help us to run from sin, to fight it and overcome it, and repent of every form of evil in our lives so that we might live faithfully and we might show the value of our great Savior and our great salvation. Thank you for loving us so richly and deeply, willing to give your own son. Boggles the mind of any parent 
how that could be. But we thank you that your ways are so much higher than ours. And we pray that you would draw us up into those ways as we live out our life from day to day. Help us to trust you and depend on your power and not our own. Help us to rest in the forgiveness, the pardon that you've provided for our sins. Help us to live the freedom, live out the freedom that you have purchased for us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Stay seated for a minute, please.